Podcast. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westcott demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. Dude, Saturday Night Fever. What up, party people? It's Saturday night on Or Whatever Movies. Actually, no, it's probably Thursday because that's the day we release podcasts. I am your co-host, Iris. I'm here with my older brother. Wesley. We're talking about a movie from our childhood. Well, technically Wes's childhood because this was released before I was born. (laughs) A movie from 1977, Saturday Night Fever. Prepare to have Iris's mind blown. Already blown, dude. This is not the movie I remember from my childhood. Probably because the TV edit is seared into my memory, but man, is it different. But this is a true (laughs) TV edit. This is where scenes were filmed intended for television and not just cheesy dubs to try to clean up a really dirty, profane movie. Really dirty, profane, inappropriate. I was hella shocked when revisiting this movie for the first time as an adult i was like what i thought i was going crazy when was this when did you revisit this movie as an adult because i'm experiencing that right now it was definitely on dvd it wasn't streaming but i seriously thought my memory was faulty because as you know or maybe you don't when i watch movies thoroughly when i've grown up with a movie i know every nuance It bugs me to no end when I'm listening to a song and like artists will re-record their hits later on for some misguided updated version. And I'm like, no, what is this? And I'll turn it off immediately. Like if it's off by one note, it's like a, like sewing someone else's arm on like for a transplant, my body rejects it immediately. And Saturday Night Fever, obviously some of the same elements exist, but it's got these body parts sewn on that I didn't recognize. And it's in fact the original body, which is what blew my mind. I feel like I need to go back and review the TV edit because if you strip out everything that's inappropriate, all the foul language, (laughs) the racism, the sexism, the misogyny, the rape, like the drug use, what movie is left? Seriously, what movie did we watch as a child, as children? It's strutting and dancing and some shoes and some shirts and some white castles. Seriously. And that's that is true. That's what I remember. I remember the dancing. I remember being very fairy tale. I'm still weirded out because in the in their competition dance, she wears a white flowy chiffon dress, but in all the cover art, she's wearing a red one. Like what's happening? Yeah, and likewise. Did she wear a red dress in the TV edit? Yeah. He, he only wears that white suit in the end. And that suit has become iconic for the movie. And yet there were these moments that were so familiar to me. (laughs) You know, it was like when I was a kid, I was drawn to the dancing. And, you know, Tony has some real goofball moments that were kind of funny to me. But I had no idea what was really going on. You know who did have an idea of what was going on, though? Dad. Dad loves Saturday Night Fever. He was all about the New York gangs 
and the, you know, got to get those barracudas because <laughs> they beat up Gus, you know, got to get them good. I mean, this was dad's adolescence on the streets of Chicago, right? I have to assume so. The, the distinction being New York and Chicago. However, in 1997, I know because I was born in 1976, dad was the ripe age of 33. And I clearly remember him geeking out about this movie while I was watching it. And granted, that may have been the TV edit, but I guarantee you Dad saw the original edit of this movie, and it just so happened that we landed on a TV edit at home. We probably ripped it from TBS or whatever the equivalent was at the time, but he was all jazzed to show it to me, and I firmly remember. So I was at least eight years old, and which would have made Dad over 40, totally geeking out about these 19-year-olds, you know, having gang fights and doing drugs and uh, club scene. And rape. Just every, <laughs> I mean, I don't know about the rape, but just about every moment of this movie feels like dad has a, a corresponding story to every moment in this film. Like, yep. like I want that, that blue shirt, man, that blue shirt's real groovy, man. And I got this new jacket and isn't my jacket hot, even though I have no business buying this jacket because I'm dirt poor and I blew all my money on this jacket and riding around my old friend's jalopy and gang wars and turf wars and all that crap. Yeah, got to get some new tapes. Got to get some new dad stealing records in his trench coat and stuff. (laughs) So this captured something for him, which he somehow shared with us, although at the time at the time we didn't really understand what it all meant. So when I got to be the same size as dad, which sadly was in fifth grade, and I was like, everybody makes fun of me because I wear these stupid Buster Brown sandals. Dad was like, you know, you need to look cool in fifth grade, some jeans. And he put me in his gigantic bell-bottom jeans. And I went to school and I was relentlessly mocked. So dad definitely had these clothes. Not only was it important to dad, but it was kind of formative media for me. I thought his pants were cool. I mean, this movie taught me, at least the, let's be clear, the TV edit taught and informed me a lot, not only about dad's life, but of life as an adult in general. I mean, these were established people. They had cars and, and he could afford two. This is how you eat pizza, two pieces stacked on top of each other. And he had a job and life and love and girls and all this stuff. And what blew my mind as much as the edit is the fact that Tony Monero and his friends, in fact, also Stephanie, 19 years old, and Stephanie claimed to be 20. Like, for all its drugs and nightlife and violence and rape and everything that was going on, these are total babies. It's a coming-of-age story. It's a, Absolutely. a formative kind of movie, and that is so bizarre to me. Because in the context of your life, this is what it meant to be like an adult. For sure. And now you're looking at them and you're like, they're babies. It's ridiculous. To give you some context, you are older than the character of Mr. Fusco, the hardware store owner. (laughs) That guy with the sideburns? You know, no, Tony, you can't fuck life. Life fucks you. You're older than that dude with the gray sideburns. I embrace that. Mr. Hardware Man's got it together. (laughs) Yeah. Tony's a hot mess, dude. And when you look at John Travolta's fresh baby face, I mean, that's as trippy as anything else. I mean, he is a beanpole. He is so young. It's painful. Kelly was like, he's always looked 30 to me. He's like 30, right? And I was like, no, dude, he's like 22 years old here, 21 years old, playing 19. As a matter of fact, the next year he played 18 or 17 in Greece. 
So is it cool or are you so embarrassed watching Tony Monero dance? Um, Kelly laughed a little bit. It was always just part of it for me. Like it was a cool dance when he does that little Russian like arms crossed leg dance. Like all that was, I don't know, it was just cool because I can't do it. And it wasn't awkward or embarrassing at all? I mean, it was kind of silly. Watching it now, the most awkward, embarrassing thing is this weird precursor to breakdancing, the rolling around on the floor thing he does. <laughs> I'm like, that's a little bit weird. It's also a little bit weird that, like, the whole dance floor would clear out for the one dude. Yeah, but he's Tony Monero. Yeah. I can always tell when an actor is wholly committed to a role because I feel embarrassed for them. <laughs> And so the dancing made me feel like that. So I'm trying to understand this movie for the first time as an adult. And, and this is what I came away with. Saturday Night Fever is a, like you said, coming of age story where Tony Monero realizes this girl comes into his life, Stephanie. She's got her own issues, to be sure. For sure. But she kind of bursts his bubble. She kind of gives him, I mean, as much as she's a poser, she gives him this window, this insight into a world that exists outside of this very insular world. Tony is a big fish in a small pond and realizes that it's not enough for him and that the world is a bigger place. If he stays in this small pond, eventually another fish will come in and he'll be relegated to the, I don't know what, the, what, what are the outskirts of the pond? the shores or something. It's not only a coming of age story, but a, a realization that life is and can be so much more than what you've grown up to understand it to be. And this is Tony's first glimpse into a world other than the one that he's inhabited for basically his entire life. Yeah. Can't be Buster Scruggs forever because eventually the man in black is going to come around because he's heard that he's the man to beat singing and slinging guns. And so Tony has to do something. But let me tell you, his bubble was burst. He does transition to a different kind of life but boy is it a messy transition like it's not like all of a sudden he's refined even stephanie in all her awkwardness trying to get out of bay ridge and into manhattan she still has to correct her grammar and she still has to kind of adjust her accent and her bearing and she's in transition and his transition is pretty messy and that was good it wasn't like he was when you're in manhattan suddenly you become a different person you carry bay ridge with you you can get the glimpses of his very slight very gradual emotional maturity as he begins to distance himself from gus and double j and joey and bobby c bobby yeah but the important thing to recognize is for as harsh and brusque and ugly as this movie surprisingly is, Tony is not always party to the things that, to the terrible things that his friends do. He kind of has seemed at odds with his friend group from the beginning. And really the only thing that keeps him firmly rooted is his bubble. When he dances, he's the king. And everybody at 2001 Odyssey acknowledges him as such. You talked about being embarrassed for him, but I guarantee you he did not feel one iota the character of the embarrassment because of how committed he was and how well that was received. His bubble was continually reinforced by legions of adoring fans. The women throwing him, themselves at him, his friends who like he says, can't do anything without consulting him first. I think it's the false, what's it called? The false validator. When you realize that you're receiving your validation from a phony, it's not worth it. Or the validation is doesn't really even mean anything. And I think that's what Tony comes to understand, that maybe he's not such a screw up. His brother, the priest, father, 
Frank Jr. <laughs> Father Frank Jr. He um his fall from grace really serves to give Tony some real perspective. You know, Bobby's own codependency on his friends and his ultimate fate, I think, give Tony some real perspective. Poor Bobby. Uh, poor Bobby, dude. That is rough. And to Bobby's credit, he's a tough guy or whatever. He rolls with his crew, but Bobby's pretty in touch. He reaches out for support. He says, like outright, I'm hurting. <laughs> like, I need your help. I'm hurting. And the poor kid, you know, he just doesn't have that in his support group. He's asking for soliciting advice. You know, perhaps they're inappropriate conversations <laughs> to be having with everybody. But poor Bobby. So is Bobby's fate and his ultimate death not innocence, but if you're not tough enough to survive Bay Ridge and everything that it represents for Tony and his crew, that you're not going to make it? You either got to make it out or you're going to die? I mean, that might be the moral of the story, but Bobby doesn't commit suicide. Doesn't he? I don't think so. I think that's an that's like a drug-induced, acting-out, depressive accident. I mean, he does go down screaming. But I don't know. It seems like Tony is maybe, arguably, the best of them, or at least the most undamaged. And he still has a pretty bad home life. There was a strange warmth to the Monero family that didn't speak to me of, you know, he's like, I'm out of work, you know, six, seven months, one pork chop, you know, and he hits the mom back when she hits him. <sighs> and then she hits the daughter. Yeah, and it's terrible and all. But it's not that terrible. It's not like he comes home. He comes home and dumps on my mother. And so my mother dumps on me kind of vibe. But it's not like he came home Goodwill hunting style with the rings on and the belt and the hammer and says, you know, what do you want tonight? Uh, it's bad, but it's just uncaring. It's just wrapped up in their own stuff. You know, her, her entire source of mm. pride and validation in her life, the mom's life, is Father Frank Jr. And the other, the dad is, you know, he's there to work. And his only role is to, in all the years of construction, I always brought home a paycheck. And it's not okay if his wife has to take over some of his role that he assigns himself. And so Tony was kind of left out. Father Frank Jr. was the hero. And so he was just kind of neglected. And I guess in some way I related to Tony, but I think dad much more so. Because I think this idea of having a tough time at home, doing drugs and hanging out in a gang and getting in fights was much more dad's speed. And then maybe some part of him wanted those disco shoes. Oh, yeah. He still talks about his Nehru jacket that he blew two paychecks on. Man. And that promptly got stolen at the club. But, you know, the moral of that story is I was the idiot who, you know, thought I could roll with a Nehru jacket. And it was like all his fault and stuff. But I think there was definitely warmth there. I think that the Monero parents, they were doing their part to make sure that their son could survive on the streets. Yeah. And thankfully, Father Frank Jr. was off the streets and he was doing his priestly thing and he was the pride of the family. Tony Monero, the Natty Gan of Bay Ridge. <laughs> <laughs> Except he's not in search of his lost father. He's in search of something more elusive. But it worked. You have to understand, this is maybe the largest full-scale TV edit next to the King's Speech, which ultimately won for Best Picture. And on the heels of that, they trimmed out a lot of the unnecessary swearing, which is the only reason that that movie generated an R in the first place. But this movie was so spectacularly successful, uh, nominated for Oscars and stuff, that when Grease came around, John Travolta was an even huger deal. He had appeared in Welcome 
back Cotter. He was in Carrie prior to this, but this movie made him a huge star. And then when Grease was a little bit more family friendly, they went back and re-edited this cut and released it theatrically in a PG version. Hmm. PG, geez. They had all of this edited for TV version footage on hand. It was shot with the uh, the regular theatrical takes. So Saturday Night Fever made John Travolta a star. I mean, was he just a kid? Like, doesn't he feel like a star in this film? Uh, he does because he is the star, at least in Bay Ridge. But with that comes the adulthood stuff that I... You know, when he's revered by everybody, young and old, with a possible exception of his family, I didn't understand what that distinction was. He was famous and adored because he was John Travolta, because he was Tony Monero. And just love to watch you dance. I love it. Watching you dance. And uh, that's just how it was for him. You mean, are you talking about the chick who, like, won't stop saying it and then he ditches her on the dance floor because she's such a terrible dancer? He, like, scoffs at how badly she dances. Oh, screw this. And, then, like, the music comes on and he takes over. Yeah, she says it no less than six times. And I think more than six with the variations where she's like, I, I love it. Okay, so question, since you know the TV edit so well, what is Annette holding in her hands in the TV edit when she comes back with three condoms in the tv edit i firmly remember condoms but i mean we're talking about a formative movie experience for me i had no idea what they were i don't remember them being anything but but i do remember as a kid being pretty confident that those three condoms were some kind of illicit drug she was offering him <laughs> You have to understand the reason that I realized that this movie was different and not just bleeped or, or badly dubbed or, or anything is because I knew the sound and cadence of this movie before I even understood what they were saying. Yeah, it's, and none, none more so than on the bridge during Bobby's tragic accident slash suicide. Like Annette's sobbing is seared into my audible memory. Yeah. And that was the biggest reckoning for me in terms of how did they get around this idea of the date rape I, or the gang rape, I guess, whatever that she experiences, which in Kelly the back seat? Re Jeez. reacted really viscerally to. Kelly was not happy about that at all. I mean, it was difficult to not for her to not impose that morality on Tony. And I tried to say it was his friends. And Tony said from the very beginning that he was trying to get away from these people. But he did enable it or condone it. I mean, granted, this was a different age. And as we discussed, it certainly could have been covered up by, look, she had partied with us before and she was on drugs and she was that's what she was asking to do. But I, I was like, how did they negotiate this rape scene with the TV edit. And I think in my memory, what happened was Annette always wants to make it, as she calls it, with Tony. Right. When that doesn't happen, when he turns her down, she's in the back seat with Double J and then she's laughing and giggling because that does happen right. in the car. But then when they park on the bridge, he looks at her and says, good, this is what you wanted. Good. Now you're a pig, which is the TV edit version of what he said. And in huh. my memory, she's upset because she was trying to show him up. Like, I'm going to show you. Right. You don't want to date me. I'll date all your friends. And then she gets right. upset and runs away because she screwed up. And Tony thinks less of her because of her actions. All which is kind of the case. How does the C word change anything for you? It doesn't. The, the point is there wasn't the rape scene. She's happy and giggling. Oh. And him saying, now you're a pig, upsets her and makes her cry. 
and she runs away and he has to go get her and she's blubbering and it does stick out as a little bit of an overreaction but that was also kind of a net that said (laughs) man it is tough to watch that scene which apparently wasn't the director's idea from what i understand this was the producer he was like almost like the weinstein of this piece pushing for the hard drugs for the gang rape for all the brutal language Uh, a lot of it was this other guy Wanting it to be edgy, wanting it to push the envelope. As edgy as possible. Yeah, really like hard hitting themes. This can't be no fairy tale Saturday Night Fever. I mean, something about it worked for dad. I mean, I'm assuming it was because it was authentic and it was and it spoke to his experience. I mean, it really did hit a chord with everybody, though. Movie was a tremendous hit. If you watch this movie closely, a lot of it is really awkward ADR, a lot of reuse of dialogue, you know, watching you dance, all that stuff. You can feel the edits in this movie and it didn't come together terribly well. But, you know, you're in a nightclub scene for an unmanageable thing for a three million dollar movie, which is no small budget in 1976 when they were filming. It was a big deal. But at the same time, this movie grossed even in 1977 dollars, something like three hundred million dollars. It's like a thousand times its budget back. It was a tremendous success. Whoa. Was John Travolta a dancer? Nope, he wasn't really a dancer. He trained hard, nonstop for like, he ran a few miles every day and then danced his his tiny little butt off. And uh, so much so, he worked so hard that he was really mad when they some of the dailies, the rushes came back and he saw that they were shooting his big dance sequence after dancing with the I Love Watching You Dance Lady. Some of it was shot in close up and he was pissed and was like, we're shooting this thing. I did all this dancing. No one's going to think that I cheated it for a second, which is why all that is shot in wide with him doing all the dancing. <laughs> and he's all lithe and skinny and long legged. Yeah, it's he's almost eerily skinny. Like those clothes are super tight. Very tight. It's so weird that this movie is about, I mean, the, the, the dancing only serves to illustrate Tony Monero's place in his world, but really is kind of beside the point. I mean, I guess it also is the way to connect the Tony and Stephanie characters who otherwise are different or at least diverging enough that they wouldn't otherwise have had a connection. Like dancing is that common denominator between those two characters. But does the TV edit end with their commitment to friendship? Does that seem like a very weird, abrupt ending? Him showing up is kind of the best that Tony can do. Like I said, he is not all of a sudden a Manhattanite when he shows up. He's still the Brooklyn kid who is trying his best to not be that, to be quiet and away from his friends and away from the place where he is most recognized as being told he's good at something. And uh, just a very quiet scene to wrap out the movie. It seems like their commitment to friendship is his validation. Just some potential for redemption. Because he is like drug and rape adjacent. He tries to rape her and possibly would have raped her. And we're looking outside from a morality 40 plus years hence. But still, Stephanie knew it was wrong. He knew it was wrong. I mean, you remember Danny jumps Sandy at the drive-in and she also needs him in the nuts. But it's like a weirder, cuter, more high school-y thing. It's kind of the same thing. And just and that very action today, he would immediately his character would immediately just because he didn't rape her or got stopped or got need in the nuts doesn't mean he wasn't gonna. 
Right. And I, I continually try to remind myself that these idiots were just out of high school, had no parental, no drive, no guidance, were just doing their things and all hopped up on drugs as if their judgment was any good without them. Don't do drugs, kids. I'm telling you. Simultaneously trying to survive and find themselves and be validated or find their place in the world, what they have to offer the world. And it, and this is a, I mean, that's what's happening when he turns over the first place trophy and prize money yes. to the other dancing pair, right? That's him saying, if I didn't earn it or if it's not real, I don't want it. It's him firmly rejecting all the accolades by which he defined himself from the very beginning. But also there were those understirrings, undercurrents of discontent. You're right. These guys can't do anything without me. You know, Bobby C. tries to give him speed and he's like, can't you guys get off on dancing? Huh. He's already in the process of moving away from it. The only way to get himself out of trouble was to get himself out of Bay Ridge. And it's no mistake that when we come in on staying alive, one of the times we come in during the refrain, life going nowhere, somebody help me. Yeah. And that's kind of Tony's jam, literally. So how did materially, how did Saturday Night Fever really affect your life? Well, it was the opposite of my life in a lot of the ways. He was grown up. He was Italian. I am not. He was a dancer. I am not. He goes to White Castle. I don't. And, you know, he was did drugs and got in fights and was violent and stuff. But it was a way to conduct yourself that displayed immediate validation for his persona. He was cool. He was a snappy dresser and he looked good in black underwear. And everybody loved him when he did the thing that he did. He was, as Bobby C. said, you know, put together in spite of the fact that he went through the same things that apparently some of his friends did. He was still the king out there and well respected. And that made him cool. And that made me want to be him. All I'm saying is for this, this movie that we saw was intended for the widest audience possible. Widest with a D. And in our defense... We only grew up on the severely edited for TV version. So like championing Tony and his friends as cool guys, rapists, druggies, that we're, we're, we're absolved of all guilt about because, that, right? Because we because didn't that know was it. That was, that's what was yes. happening. They were just cool guys who were running amok, rebel without a cause style, angsty and relatable. And in the same way, we grew up loving this music and this soundtrack, and it became really not cool for a long time. And now it's cool again. The Bee Gees is a staple on every station. Ready for a quiz? Yes. Did you know that your boy, Rick Dees, appears in Saturday Night Fever? No. Yep. Where? Where is he? He makes an appearance, albeit auditory only. Rick Dees. Oh. When Pete's teaching his dance class, they're playing Rick Dees' Disco Duck. Wow. Did you know that John Travolta's mother is in Saturday Night Fever? Yes, I do. As well as his sister. Of course, this all <laughs> really? this all comes about after the fact. Sure. The mom was in the paint store customer. Where have you been? I'm very mad at you. And he's like, that's all right, because I give you a dollar off just for you. What do you think of that? And then, uh, you know, hi, Tony, two pieces or three today. That's his sister. No way. You know, to show how much John Travolta is a star in this movie, nobody else really made a memorable impression. There's no like, holy crap, so-and-so is in this movie? Nobody. 
It's just him in a little movie that nobody expected to go anywhere and still continues to be the only real breakout star. Name a, name a single other person. Do you know who the most famous other person in Saturday Night Fever is? No. So are you? Are you as good in bed as you are on that dance floor? And then she grabs his butt. The film debut of Fran Drescher. Who? Fran. <laughs> she was the Fran Drescher. She was the nanny. In what? In The Nanny, the TV show. Oh, I think I'm making your point right now. Yeah, but none of these people broke out at all. Wow. Because this movie was a little nothing movie that wasn't expected to go anywhere. And yet here it is. Yep. Now available on 4K Blu-ray, which apparently includes the edited for TV version, which my understanding was was only available on VHS. I wonder how many people are going to come forward saying this was totally their experience with Saturday Night Fever. We'll see. Like, who watched this movie as a kid and then was completely shocked by it? Let us know for sure. We are eager to find out. Give us a call and let us know. Email us to tell us what your experiences were with Saturday Night Fever because very curious. There is no movie in my life that was as much of a surprise and a different experience viewing it as an adult than when I was a child. Where I thought I knew this movie inside and out and boy was I wrong. So Saturday Night Fever, is this review proof? I had to examine my own objectivity. I had to figure out if experiencing it for the first time, it made it still the obvious totally that I thought this movie was going to be. And I still think it is because, in a way, for a coming-of-age tale that pulled, that really pulls no punches, is sort of miraculous in its ability to be affecting for a little independent movie that for some reason everybody remembers. I know and love this movie the same way I know and love Grease and Pulp Fiction and a bunch of other John Travolta movies that are cemented in my childhood. Like a John Travolta is the dude buried in the cement in the Veranzano Bridge or whatever. A movie that was striving to be the most authentic, edgy snapshot of a moment in time that wasn't intended necessarily to be enduring, but totally is. Definitely very affecting, even shocking, I'd say, for our time where we've seen everything. If it really is an authentic portrayal of what life for a Tony Monero might be like, it's a pretty shocking existence. And to see what it might be like to avail yourself of that is like quite a heroic, even inspirational kind of story. So I definitely felt like Saturday Night Fever held up. Incredible performance by John Travolta, just completely unflinching and fearless. Oscar-nominated performance at that. For an actor who was really just a kid. I do think with the proper amount of context and viewing John Travolta and his career for what it is, you would be remiss not to see Saturday Night Fever, as long as you understand that some of the elements don't date very well. But still, this is right. an important, I think, and unflinching coming-of-age tale that is necessary that one should totally see. And that's our review on... 1977's Saturday Night Fever. What a trip. 818-835-0473 is our hotline or whatever movies at gmail.com is our email address. Follow us at or whatever movies. Thank you to our Patreon supporters for supporting this podcast. Thank you for listening and subscribing. We hope you enjoyed this, our review on Saturday Night Fever and stay alive. 
ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there. Electric Cast.